Welcome to the Film Doctor. I'd first of all like to start off with a little bit of a disclaimer. A lot of the ideas and perspectives I'm going to be discussing today are very dated. And due to the time period they were developed, these ideas on gender and sexuality were very heteronormative. And also were exclusive towards trans and non-binary people and those who aren't cishet. Bear in mind, because while we are discussing some aspects of feminism, I don't agree with these beliefs. I don't fully condone them because a lot of them exclude intersectional feminism and focus on white, cisgender, heterosexual women, if I'm looking at it from my own personal viewpoint and from a modern lens. I'm just putting that out there because... Like a lot of perspectives I talk about in this series, I really don't encourage anyone to agree with them. All we're doing is looking at them analytically and subjectively removing all biases, no matter how correct our own biases may be. It's also important to know that when we discuss a theory or a perspective, we look at it through the lens of the time. My golden rule for studying older, more traditional theories, be it philosophical, political, ethical, psychological, you name it, it's that in order to fully analyze it, you have to leave all modern 21st century biases and worldviews at the door. I know we're more inclusive and progressive nowadays and most definitely more morally right because our generation is more inclusive of minorities than any other, but that really clouds our judgment and prevents us from analyzing these things to their full capacity. As of now, if I haven't stated this in another episode, when we talk about these different critical theories, it does not mean we agree with them. It's just us with our analytical lens on. Emphasis on the word analytical. Funnily enough, the concept of biases hindering your judgment is something that has been surfacing my mind recently, and it's relevant to the philosopher that we're going to be applying to today's analysis. This morning, I was listening to one of my favorite philosophy podcasts, and that's Philosophize This, and it talked about the philosophy of aestheticism. Basically, one of the main aspects of aestheticism is the way that art should be viewed. And philosophers such as the one that I'm about to introduce would agree that in order to perceive art to its full potential, you have to remove all pre-existing biases. So for this episode and every other one, I hope you leave all your biases at the door, whatever they are. And this philosopher in question is the woman, the womith, the legend, her royal highness, the one and only Simone de Beauvoir. Beauvoir is probably, in my opinion, one of the most interesting philosophers. Best known for her 1949 novel, The Second Six, it's a great read, I highly recommend it. Beauvoir was a philosophical and political pioneer. She subverted the classic male-dominated area of philosophy and put a feminist, neoplatonist, and even socialist spin on it, completely revolutionizing the fundamental aspects of existentialism. 
She really challenged and disrupted widely accepted ideals. The famous existentialist phrase, l'existence précède l'essence, or existence precedes essence, was coined by fellow existentialist philosopher and Beauvoir's longtime partner, Jean-Paul Sartre. This phrase means that we as human beings use our consciousness and self-awareness to create our own meaning of our life. Because being born into this world, we really start off with having no true meaning or value to our life. Therefore, it's up to us to create it. This is similar to the concept that we discussed in the previous episode, and that was postmodernism in Mulholland Drive. If you've listened to that episode already, what I'm telling you now may not be very new to you. It is quite similar because something that came up a lot in that episode was how, in postmodernism, truth and reality don't exist in the first place and that they simply can't coexist with the fact that individuals have free thinking, so it's up to us as the individuals to define those things for us. Is this sounding like deja vu? Are you getting season 2 episode 1 flashbacks? Well, it really should start to click because the Beauvoirian and existential perspectives are very similar to the postmodern perspective that we looked at in the previous episode. The similarities are very obvious, but we're going to leave postmodernism in the past, so if you want to hear me ramble on about that, go listen to the previous episode. Now back to Simone de Beauvoir. With that mantra, existence precedes essence, or l'existence possède l'essence. God, French is so sexy. <laughs> uh, where was I? Okay, so... With this existential mantra, um, God, I'm losing my train of thought, you know, the French distracted me. Simone de Beauvoir turned that mantra into a feminist one, and that is, one is not born, but becomes a woman. And now onto the film that we're going to be discussing in this episode. It's one of my favorite films of all time, by one of my favorite directors, and it's got a very Beauvoirian title and heaps of Beauvoirian elements in it, so we're spoiled for choice here in terms of what to analyze. And the film in question is Jean-Luc Godard's A Woman is a Woman. The film is about Angela, a stripper slash exotic dancer, and her boyfriend Emile. Angela is desperate to have a baby with a meal, but he's reluctant. The first hour or so of the film is them arguing and her trying to convince him. And then Emile's friend and their neighbor who is in love with Angela gets thrown in and he's happy to conceive the child with her. This is definitely one of my favorite French New Wave films. It's probably my favorite after Alphaville and Belle de Jour. The French New Wave, or La Nouvelle Vague, is probably my favorite artistic movement. I love everything about it. The fashion, the films, the music, everything. I'm very obsessed with it, and it's helped me create a very big portion of my image and personality. 
This movement came about at the end of the 1950s, and it was very prominent throughout the 60s, and it was kind of considered the exodus from the old Hollywood era. This is not to be confused with, like, 70s and 80s new wave, like, talking heads and the cure and stuff. We're not talking about that kind of new wave. So this new wave, it was considered the new wave because it subverted the classic, conventional, old Hollywood filmmaking conventions. It was very subversive. You know, it's funny because today one of my teachers told me that I'm very subversive, and I think that's true. So like the French New Wave movement, I'm quite subversive myself. Well, so there you go. Another little look into my psyche. Like yours truly, this subversive movement loved to challenge what was socially acceptable at the time. Of course, the old Hollywood era of film was magnificent and a defining era in the history of cinema, but if we are going to look at it through a feminist lens, we gotta recognize the fact that the way they portrayed women was, uh, let me just say that if it wasn't as glamorized as it is, it definitely wouldn't fly in today's world. I'm not saying that we have to condemn old Hollywood because, you know, that will be contradicting what I said at the start where we look at things through the lens of the time. But what I'm saying is that we have to see past the fact that, oh, it was all glamorous back then and be aware that it was a very misogynistic era. The way that women were objectified during that era, I think it goes without saying. I'm sure that it's going to be very hard to find an old Hollywood film that doesn't involve at least one female character being portrayed as a sex object. Don't get me wrong, yeah, I'm all for um, portraying women in a way that's not misogynistic, but <laughs> this is just my own personal view. I personally like looking at it from my lens, like let's say the film doctor perspective. So my take on it is that I personally, let's say if I were a woman in a film, I have no pro- because I am- I do act, but I, yeah, I have no problem being sexualized. Like, I personally, I don't care if I were treated on screen as a sex object. I'm just putting it out there. I know this is outrageous. I'm starting to turn into one of those red scare podcast girls. Yeah, I'm just- I'm being brutally honest. I literally do not give a flying fuck about whether I'm being objectified and sexualized on screen. This isn't really relevant, this is just me explaining what's going on in my twisted little psyche because I just want to put this out there because you can be a feminist without condemning over-sexualization of women. Like, it's not a set-in-stone rule for you to be like, Ooh, women are not allowed to stick their tits out in films, otherwise it's misogynistic. As a feminist, I cannot watch anything where women are portrayed as sexual. I know this probably sounds like another rabbit hole I'm going down, as I do in every single episode, but I think it's very applicable to how Simone de Beauvoir's theories are relevant to this film. Just bear with me, we are gonna get there. What I'm saying is applicable. Well, yeah, what I am saying is that just because you're a feminist doesn't mean you need to condemn hypersexualized portrayals of women. So, yeah, that's how women were often portrayed in old Hollywood films, but French New Wave cinema wanted 
to subvert that. What the French New Wave did was that, with their female protagonists, they actually gave them an individual voice and personality and they were actually usually strong-willed women and they weren't like, you know, the typical old Hollywood female protagonists. It was kind of just there for aesthetic value, just the typical bimbo or, you know, this is still a modern thing, you know the dumb blonde character archetype? Yeah, that was something that I think was born in old Hollywood and this was always like often portrayed by Marilyn Monroe and such. So, because I think that, of course, I'm not saying that we should like condemn this trope completely, but, you know, if you think about it, the origin of the Dumblon archetype, it could be quite misogynistic if we're looking at it through this feminist lens, because it was like these typical Dumblon characters, they were very attractive, and often sexualized by the male characters in the film. You know, the male gaze. Remember we talked about that in one of the episodes in season one. But despite their attractiveness, they are portrayed as being very unintelligent. Yeah, Simone de Beauvoir would have hated the dumb blonde archetype. I think we get the picture here. For example, Angela in this film... She's a classic example of this because unlike a lot of the female protagonists in old Hollywood films, she's very strong-willed and she's set in her ways. This is seen during the scenes where she's kind of, she's getting into arguments with Emile because she's so set in her ways with her decision and, cause, you know, she's like a, she's not portrayed as weak and she's kind of, she's got her own motivations and she believes that she has her own freedom of choice. And now this is where we bring Simone de Beauvoir back into it. One of Beauvoir's most popular and it's probably one of her most condensed theories because it's something that is quite easy of a concept to grasp was the idea, well, theory that she had was that women are as capable of decision-making as men and the fact that we as humans have complete freedom of choice. I know that when I'm saying this to you now, you're probably thinking, yeah, no shit. Of course we have the same capacity as men to make decisions. Like, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I know it's obvious, but bear in mind, we're looking at this through the lens of the time. So this was like the 1940s. So this idea that Beauvoir had, it was clearly very revolutionary and subversive. With Beauvoir, her ideas on philosophy were definitely seen as very unconventional. It rocked the boat of the male philosophers, comfortable little ideas of philosophy that kind of upheld the patriarchy because one thing that Beauvoir believed was that as humans, so there's the collective, but there's also the self and the other. The concepts of the self and the other were existential concepts and Beauvoir put more of like a feminist spin on it and said that, well actually, the women have always been treated as the other and they've kind of, throughout history, 
being seen as incapable of making decisions to the same extent that men can. As I briefly brought up before in Beauvoir's book, The Second Sex, it talked about how women were treated as inferiors, hence the name, the second sex, so that hints that they were the other and they were not the self. Because in the podcast that I was listening to, the philosophize this one, Stephen West, the host, he was talking about how that something Beauvoir was very passionate about was advocating for women having, or like being accepted as having the same ambitions as men or wanting to work towards the same goals as them and having access to just the same things that they had. In the film, the character of Angela really embodies these ideals because we can see that she's very strong-willed and during the scenes where she's kind of having a little bit of an argument with Emile, it kind of seems like a battle of the sexes is going on. Like the classic feminist film trope, she's asserting dominance over the man a lot of times, but also she acknowledges, like, one of the most famous lines from the film is, why is it always women who have to suffer? So, Angela is acknowledging the fact that her place is as the other, while Emile is the self, because Angela finds that she's often resisting against the set-in-stone patriarchal dominance that Emile has because he's he's resisting towards her decision, he's like asserting his authority over her. There's bits in the film where Angela's behavior is reminiscent of patriarchy because, you know, there's some bits where she's like doing classic stuff. I don't know how to word this. She's doing stuff that's kind of typical of the patriarchy. Like she's cooking him dinner and she's kind of reluctantly obeying every wish of Emile. And yeah, so that shows that she's acknowledging the fact that she, as a woman, is kind of treated as the, in Bavarian terms, the second sex. Though throughout the film, she's kind of trying to break past that and see how she can go... F Sorry about the... Jesus Christ, what the... My apologies for that interruption. I have no idea what that was. Anyway, where were we? Um, thing, patriarchy, uh, second sex, self, another, Simone de Beauvoir. I think Beauvoir's idea of women being as capable of choice as men kind of stems from the fact that, in the first place, she believed that we all have absolute freedom of choice. And it seems to be somewhat a very collective thing, because, you know, you got the collective, so us all as humans, we've got, like, complete freedom to do whatever we want. That's her existentialist belief. Then if you break it down, we got the self and the other, so that's what Beauvoir described as being how- Sorry, my house is really creaky and there's been heaps of interruptions. I apologize for that. So anyway, Beauvoir believed that when you break down the collective, there's the self and other, and then men were often viewed as the self, and then women were viewed as the other. But what she wanted to do was bring those together and kind of dissolve the idea of, like, men have to be the self, women have to be the other. So her idea of absolute freedom of choice is definitely linked to her initial idea that 
women should be viewed as being as capable as men of decision making. And I think through Angela that is very apparent. I know this is not a psychology based episode, but I do love my psychology and my personal belief because, you know, we as humans have absolute freedom of choice. This is my freedom of expressing what I choose to believe anyway. Yeah, so my belief is that psychology is the foundation of everything. So if we are to look at the psychology of this film, I'm going to try not to veer away from philosophy too far. But if we're to look at Angela's psyche, we can see that throughout the film, she's definitely exercising the existentialist belief that she does have complete freedom to make whatever decisions she likes. And she's owning it. She really is. You go, girlfriend. So my theory is the character of Angela represents a Beauvoirian ideal. I firmly believe that she's Simone de Beauvoir's dream girl. Yeah, she's the dream girl. She's what Dorothy Valens from Blue Velvet is to Sigmund Freud, if that makes sense. If you have listened to the episode, you'll, you'll know what I'm referencing. What I mean by this is that she's the perfect guinea pig for studying Beauvoir's theories. If you watch the film and study her motives very carefully, it'll be clear to you that she's epitomizing and embodying the ideal mindset that Simone de Beauvoir wants a woman to have. Well, not only woman, I think that this mindset can definitely be applicable to any other gender because she's not letting any outside forces influence her decision. It's all from her own capacity to make decisions. We can interpret this as the very essence of Beauvoir's idea of absolute freedom of choice. There's no outside forces influencing her decisions. She's dead set on it. And here's my evidence for this claim. So you know how Angela's motive and the thing that she wants most throughout this film, her driving force is the fact that she wants to have a baby? Well, I think that because it's quite ironic because, you know, the French New Wave wanted to um, subvert the expectations of women and their role in society. But I think, I don't know if Jean-Luc Godard did this intentionally, but I think this is very clever because Angela is very apparently upholding society's expectations of a woman's role in, as the self in comparison to men. Because, you know, she wants to settle down, be a stay-at-home mom, be a housewife. And when we take this completely out of context and remove our Beauvoirian lens, it appears that Angela's decisions are merely just... They're kind of... How do I say this? They're encouraging the patriarchy because, you know, typical old-school 20th century housewife. You couldn't get more misogynistic than that. That just shows that, you know, who cares if it's typical misogynistic, stereotypical stuff? That's her decision, and she's got the absolute freedom of choice. So, Beauvoir would argue that, sure, it may not be the most empowering thing as a feminist, but 
It's her choice. It's her absolute freedom of choice. Of course, I can't put words into the mouth of Godard. I mean, come on, I've taken English every single year in high school, and all he did was put words into the mouth of directors and authors, so this shouldn't be too bad. This was a very clever directorial choice because my take on it is that he intended to show, well, if we're looking at it through a Bavarian perspective, Godard intended to portray the fact that the character of Angela, she's kind of, she's not making that decision because she thinks that that's going to empower her as a woman, but she thinks that because she's got like total freedom to make whatever decision she pleases, she's exercising that. I'm going to bring in my own personal thoughts on this without hopefully making it sound too personal. So for me, my own personal existential philosophy surrounding decision makings, I think I take a somewhat Beauvoirian approach to it because I believe that I have total freedom to make whatever decision I like and I'm not going to let anything hinder that. So there's no outside forces that are going to hinder my decision making because to philosophists like Beauvoir, they simply don't exist. All you have is the self that makes the decisions. So if the self is the center of decision making that leaves us with the other. And that's why with the whole self, other, man, woman theory, I think that really explains a lot of accounts of women being objectified because they were always seen as the other. They weren't seen as the full self. So that's kind of, you know, that's saying behind every great man there's a great woman. Yeah, I think that also upholds that self-other theory because it's hinting that the woman is subservient to the man. I think that since Beauvoir believed in absolute freedom of choice, yeah, as a feminist, I think it is great if women decide to break the mold of patriarchy and kind of exceed expectations of what a woman's role in society should be. But I think that we need to bear in mind that with Beauvoir's take on feminism, I think that, you know, since we all have absolute choice for whatever, we should acknowledge that sometimes, let's say if a woman like Angela in the film decides to take up roles in society that kind of submit to the patriarchy, quote-unquote, like becoming a housewife or having kids and, you know, that kind of stuff. We gotta acknowledge that part of being a feminist in Beauvoir's eyes is that it's not all about breaking the mold of patriarchy and being like a girl boss who dominates the men. No, that, well, not me, Beauvoir thinks that it's okay to do whatever. If you want to become a strong and powerful girl boss who doesn't need to depend on a man, that's great. Go do that. Or if you want to do the opposite and submit to a dominating male and I worded that so badly. Okay, cut. Scratch that. I can word that a lot better. So yeah, it's okay if you want to, um, how do I word this? Fuck. My mind's gone blank. Um, <laughs> I can't think of a way to word this without sounding slightly misogynistic. Um, 
So yeah, you can be a feminist girl boss who's strong and powerful and doesn't need a man, or you can be more, uh, this is going to sound really wrong again, submissive, I guess. You can kind of, like, conform. Yeah, that's the word. Conform to embracing the traditional role of a woman. This ties into what I said earlier about old Hollywood and how I personally, as an actress, am okay with being sexualized and objectified because as long as that's my choice, that's fine. If we're looking at Beauvoir's feminist mantra from before, one is not born but becomes a woman that tells us that there's no ideal type of woman that we as feminists need to become in order to destroy the patriarchy because I think that's not what Beauvoir's feminism is all about. It's more about what's more important is the fact that you as a woman or not man have the capabilities of making a decision and molding your life and deciding who you want to be and what you want to do to the same extent that a man has. So it's not about the type of woman or person you become when striving to break this patriarchy. It's more about the way in which you exercise your ability to make these decisions and figure out these things for yourself. So with the character of Angela, what we've learned about her is it's not the outcome of her decision-making process that kind of makes her significant. It's more about how she used her ability and capacity to have all this absolute freedom to make decisions to get to where she wanted to get. And that's something so significant that we have to be aware of. And that leads me to the final pearls of Beauvoirian existential and philosophical wisdom that I'm going to impart on you before I leave. The significance of this isn't exactly the person you mold yourself into. No, it's actually how you utilize your freedom to make whatever decisions you like. Because also oppression was a big topic that Simone de Beauvoir talked about a lot. So I think what is significant about combating oppression is not so much what your approach to it is, but it's more about the fact that you have the ability to do it in the first place. Well, pretentious cinephiles, I hope that this episode was a nice little introduction to our good friend Simone de Beauvoir and philosophical and existential feminism. It's been a really insightful discussion. I hope you enjoyed, and I'll catch you in the next episode where we're going to be talking about some of my favorite things to discuss, and that is voyeurism and psychoanalysis. And we'll be revisiting some very familiar faces who are no strangers to the film Doctor, and that's Freud and Jung. Stay tuned because you really don't want to miss it. And that's a wrap on Season 2, Episode 2.